0: And welcome back to yet another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie, and this is my co-host Sandy. Hey guys. I really don't have an intro for this one. Um, I literally just put on my paper new year, same nonsense. So let's just get into it. Do your thing, girl. I just feel like a lot of people can probably relate to that sentiment. So we'll just get into it. Today I will be covering the story of Cameron Todd Willingham. Todd Willingham was accused of setting his house on fire with his three daughters inside. Forensic Science, at the time, claimed that the fire was intentional and set by Todd, and this was the leading factor in his conviction and eventual execution in 2004. Opponents of the death penalty have long focused on questionable evidence used against Willingham, believing that this case may be the first to show conclusively that an innocent man was put to death in the modern era of capital punishment. Oof, that's awful. Yeah.
1: Worst nightmare.
0: I know. It really is. Mm -hmm. Because there's been so many that are like close calls. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: many that we think were probably, you know, wrongfully. After the fact. Yes. Mm -hmm. After the fact. But this one, so many things kind of came up before. And there were so many things that just kept him from like finding justice, really. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really sad case. worst case scenario for the criminal justice system.
1: Yeah. Putting
0: an innocent man to death. And yet, here we are. And this was 2004. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. And there's still a lot of, like, pushback by the people who were responsible. I'm sure. Who are like, no, that's, you know, that's not what happened. So, um, it's a bit of a long one, um, but there is also a lot of things that kind of had a hand in his execution. So, I did think it was important to kind of go through through all of those. So, let's just get into it. On the morning of December 23, 1991, just days before Christmas, a fire moved quickly through their house. It was a one-story wood-framed structure in a working-class neighborhood of Corsicana in Northeast Texas. Flames spread along the walls, bursting through doorways, blistering paint, tile, and furniture. Smoke pressed against the ceiling, then banked downward, seeping into each room and through the crevices in the windows. Willingham's neighbor, Buffy Barbie, who was 11 years old and lived two houses down, was playing in her backyard when she smelled the smoke. She ran inside to tell her mother, Diane, and they hurried up the street. And that's when they saw the smoldering house and Cameron Todd Willingham standing on the front porch wearing only a pair of jeans. His chest blackened with soot and his hair and eyelids singed. He was screaming, My babies are burning up. His children, Carmen and Cameron, who were one-year-old twin girls, and two-year-old Amber were trapped inside the house. Oh, they were little very, very little babies. Willingham told the Barbies to call the fire department. And while Diane raced down the street to get help, he found a stick and broke the children's bedroom window fire lashed through the hole. He broke another window and flames burst through it too. He then retreated into the backyard, kneeling in front of the house. A neighbor later told police that Willingham intermittently cried my babies, then fell silent as if he had blocked the fire out of his mind. Diane Barbie, returning to the scene, could feel intense heat radiating off of the house. Moments later, the five windows of the children's room exploded and flames blew out, as Barbie put it. Within minutes, the first fireman had arrived, and Willingham approached them, shouting that his children were in their bedroom where the flames were the thickest. A fireman sent word over his radio for rescue teams to step on it. More men showed up, uncoiling hoses and aiming water at the blaze. One fireman, who had an Air tank strapped to his back and a mask covering his face slipped through a window but was hit by water from a hose and had to retreat. He then charged through the front door into a swirl of smoke and fire. Heading down the main corridor, he reached the kitchen where he saw a firefighter blocking the back door. Todd Willingham appeared to grow more and more hysterical and a police chaplain named George Monaghan had led him to the back of a fire truck and tried to calm him down. And so a police chaplain, for those who, like me, were kind of unfamiliar with what that was, um, they serve as a support system for law enforcement in times of crisis. They can be volunteers or sworn officers. They come in all faiths and are fully ordained. And some, but not all, hold degrees or certifications and mental health treatment. Willingham had explained that his wife, Stacy, had gone out earlier that morning to buy the girls Christmas gifts and had then been jolted from his sleep by Amber screaming, Daddy, Daddy! He says, my little girl was trying to wake me up and tell me about the fire, but I couldn't get my babies out. While he was talking, a fireman emerged from the house cradling Amber. As she was given CPR, Willingham, who was 23 years old and powerfully built, ran to see her, but then subtly headed toward the baby's room. So he like ran to see his daughter, who had just been res- like rescued, mm-hmm. but decided to try and brave the fire and try to go back inside to save to the babies. The uh, Moynihan and another man restrained him. We had to wrestle him and then handcuff him for his own protection. Oh. I received a black eye. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So one of the first firemen at the scene also told investigators that at an earlier point, he had also held Willingham back. Based on what I saw on how the fire was burning, it would have been crazy for anyone to try to go inside that house. Willingham was taken to a hospital where he was told that Amber, who had actually been found in the master bedroom, had died of smoke inhalation. Cameron and Carmen had been lying on the floor of the children's bedroom, their body severely burned. According to the medical examiner, they too died from smoke inhalation. News of the tragedy spread through Corsicana, a small city 55 miles northeast of Waco. It had once been the center of Texas' first oil boom, but many of the wells had since dried up and more than a quarter of the city's 20,000 inhabitants had fallen into poverty. Willingham and his wife Stacy, who was 22 years old, had virtually no money. Stacy worked in her brother's bar called Some Other Place, which is kind of like a cool name for a bar, right? Yeah. And Willingham was an unemployed auto mechanic who had been caring for the kids. So he was like a modern day stay-at-home dad at the time. The community took up a collection to help the Willinghams pay for the funeral arrangements. Fire investigators, meanwhile, tried to determine the cause of the blaze. Willingham gave authorities permission to search the house. He said, I know we might never know all the answers, but I'd like to just know why my babies were taken from me. Douglas Fogg, who was then the assistant fire chief in Corsicana, conducted the initial inspection. He had grown up in Corsicana and after graduating from high school in 1963, had joined the Navy, serving as a medic in Vietnam. After he returned from Vietnam, he became a firefighter and by the time of the Willingham blaze, he had been battling fire for more than 20 years and had become a certified arson investigator. He was soon joined on the case by the state's leading arson sleuths, a deputy fire marshal by the name of Manuel Vasquez, who has since died, but Vasquez had previously worked in army intelligence and believed a couple of things were true about fire. The first was that fire does not destroy evidence, it creates it, and that the fire tells a story, I am just the interpreter. Once he was asked under oath whether he had ever been mistaken in a case, and his response was, If I have, sir, I don't know. It's never been pointed out. (laughs) Basically, he was very confident in his Mm -hmm. abilities as a fire investigator or an arson investigator. And so this team kind of like takes on this whole case. Vasquez and Fogg visited the Willingham's house four days after the blaze. Following protocol, they moved through the least burned areas towards the most damaged ones. It's a systematic method, Vasquez said. Adding, I'm just collecting information. I have not made any determination. I don't have any preconceived ideas. Upon opening the back door, Vasquez observed that there was just enough space to squeeze past the refrigerator blocking the exit. The air smelled of burned rubber and melted wires. A damp ash covered the ground, sticking to their boots. In the kitchen, Vasquez and Fogg can only detect smoke and heat damage, a sign that the fire had not originated there. And so they pushed deeper into the 975 square foot building. A central corridor led past the utility room and the master bedroom, then past a small living room on the left, and the children's bedroom on the right, ending at the front door, which opened onto the porch. In the utility room, Vasquez noticed on the walls pictures of skulls and what he later described as an image of the Grim Reaper. Then he turned into the master bedroom where Amber's body had been found. Most of the damage there was also from smoke and heat, suggesting that the fire had started farther down the hallway. He headed that way, stepping over debris and ducking under insulation and wiring that hung down from the exposed ceiling. As he and Fogg removed some of the clutter, they noticed deep charring along the base of the walls. Because gases become buoyant when heated, flames ordinarily burn upward. But Vasquez and Fogg observed that the fire had burned extremely low down and that there were very particular char patterns on the floor, shaped like puddles. Vasquez's mood darkened. He followed the burn trailer, which is the path etched by the fire which led from the hallway and into the children's room. Sunlight filtered through the broken windows, illuminating more of the irregularly shaped char patterns. A flammable or combustible liquid doused on a floor will cause a fire to concentrate in these kinds of pockets, which is why investigators refer to them as pore patterns or puddle configurations. The fire had burned through layers of carpeting and tile and plywood flooring. Moreover, the metal springs under the children's bed had turned white, a sign that intense heat had radiated beneath them. Seeing that the floor had some of the deepest burns, Vasquez deduced that it had been hotter than the ceiling, which, given that heat rises, was, in his words, not normal. Fogg examined a piece of glass from one of the broken windows. It contained a spiderweb-like pattern that fire investigators call crazed glass. And you hear about crazed glass, these, like, V patterns, all of these things you hear in pretty much all arson cases Mm -hmm. because they're like very common okay forensic textbooks have long described this effect as a key indicator that a fire had burned fast and hot meaning that it had been fueled by liquid accelerant causing the glass to fracture the men looked again at what happened to be a distinct burn trailer through the house it went from the children's bedroom into the corridor then turned sharply to the right and proceeded out the front door to the investigator's surprise even the wood under the door's aluminum threshold was charred On the concrete floor of the porch, just outside the front door, Vasquez and Fogg noticed another unusual thing. Brown stains, which they reported, were consistent with the presence of an accelerant. The men scanned the walls for soot marks that resembled a V, which was noteworthy because when an object catches on fire, it creates such a pattern. As heat and smoke radiate outward, the bottom of the V can therefore point to where a fire began. In the Willingham house, there was a distinct V in the main corridor. Examining it and other burn patterns, Vasquez identified three places where the fire had originated—in the hallway, in the children's bedroom, and at the front door. Vasquez later testified that multiple origins pointed to one conclusion—that the fire was intentionally set by human hands. By now, both investigators had a clear vision of what had happened. Someone had poured liquid accelerant through the children's room, even under their beds, then poured some more along the adjoining hallway and out the front door, creating a fire barrier that prevented anyone from escaping. Similarly, a prosecutor later suggested that the refrigerator in the kitchen had been moved to block the back door exit. The house, in short, had deliberately transformed into a death trap. Mm -hmm. But they're saying that it was made into a death trap. Yeah, so basically they have this thought that the refrigerator had been moved to block Mm -hmm. the back door and that the way the fire had been set made it impossible for anyone Trap to get them. out and basically said like well the only way that this could have been started is if someone started it so basically like todd went from the girls room mm-hmm. down the hallway and then the last thing he did was set the front door ablaze mm-hmm. and then he went out okay the fire was now considered a triple homicide and todd willingham the only person beside the victims known to have been in the house at the time of the blaze became the prime suspect Police and fire investigators canvassed the neighborhood interviewing witnesses. Several, like Father Monahan, the police chaplain, had initially portrayed Willingham as devastated by the fire. Yet, over time, an increasing number of witnesses offered damning statements. Diane Barbie, who had been the one to call the fire department, now said that she had not seen Willingham try to enter the house until after the authorities arrived, as if he were putting on a show. And when the children's room exploded with flames, he seemed more preoccupied with moving his car out of the driveway. Another neighbor reported that when Willingham cried out for his babies, he did not appear to be excited or concerned. Okay. Why would anyone be excited? I don't know. Or they're <laughs> saying that he was very like flat in his yeah, tone, Yeah, like just emotionless. Mm-hmm. But again, you're literally watching your house burn down with your children inside like, mm-hmm. you know, that could also just be a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. He was in shock. Yeah. Even Father Moynihan wrote a statement that upon further reflection, things were not as they seemed. He said, I had the feeling that Willingham was in complete control, and so the police began to piece together a disturbing profile of Willingham. Born in Ardmore, Oklahoma in 1968, Willingham had been abandoned by his mother when he was a baby. His father, Gene, who had divorced his mother, eventually raised him with his stepmother, Eugenia. Gene, a former U.S. Marine, worked in a salvage yard, and the family lived in a cramped house. At night, they could hear freight trains rattling past on a nearby track. Willingham, who had what the family called the classic Willingham look—a handsome face, thick black hair, and dark eyes—struggled in school, and as a teenager, began to sniff paint. (laughs) That's just such like an old school thing to do. (laughs) When he was 17, Oklahoma's Department of Human Services evaluated him and reported he likes girls, music, fast cars, sharp trucks, swimming, and hunting in that order. (laughs) What an evaluation! <laughs> Willingham dropped out of high school and over time was arrested for, among other things, driving under the influence, stealing a bicycle, and shoplifting. It's all like some small petty little kid crime. Yeah. In 1988, he met Stacy, a senior in high school who also came from a troubled background. When she was four years old, her stepfather had strangled her mother to death during a fight. Oh my gosh. I know. Did she witness it? Uh, I don't know if she witnessed it. It didn't say. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything that said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem like both of their past seemed to seep into their present because Stacy and Todd had a turbulent relationship. Willingham had been unfaithful, drank too much, and sometimes even hit Stacy when she was pregnant. Oof. Yeah. Okay. So he wasn't the best. He's person. not. He wasn't the perfect husband. Mm-hmm. Even Stacy will later say that like he would have never hurt. That he children. loved the children. Yeah, that he loved them and that he would never, ever hit them or do anything to harm them. On December 31st, the authorities brought Willingham in for questioning. Fogg and Vasquez were present for the interrogation along with Jimmy Hensley, a police officer who was working his first arson case. Willingham said that Stacy had left the house around 9 a.m., to pick up a Christmas present for the kids at the Salvation Army. He stated that after she got out of the driveway, I heard the twins cry, so I got up and gave them a bottle. The children's bedroom had a safety gate across the doorway, which Amber could climb over, but not the twins. Amber was still in bed, so he went back to sleep in his room. He then says that the next thing he remembers is hearing, Daddy, Daddy, and at this point, the house was already full of smoke. He said that he got up, felt around the floor for a pair of pants, put them on, And at this point, he could no longer hear his daughter's voice. I heard that last daddy, daddy, and never heard her again. He hollered, oh, God, Amber, get out of the house. Get out of the house. Um, Todd never sensed that Amber was in his bedroom. But if you remember earlier, Amber was found in his bedroom. Okay. Okay. But he thinks that perhaps she had already passed out by the time right. he stood up or if she came in after he left through a second doorway from the living room. And it, it was already so dark, full of smoke that it was really hard to mm-hmm. see anything. So there's really like he doesn't really know what happened and how she ended up there. But he didn't know where she was. He couldn't see her. He couldn't see her. Mm-hmm. No, he just heard her scream, like screaming out for him. But then that was it. Mm-hmm. He said that he went down the corridor trying to reach the children's bedroom In the hallway, he said, you couldn't see anything but black. The air smelled the way it had when their microwave had blown up three weeks earlier, like wire and stuff like that, he said. He could hear sockets and light switches popping, and he crouched down, almost crawling. When he made it to the bedroom, he said he stood, and his hair caught on fire. He said, oh God, I've never felt anything that hot before. He said of the heat that was radiating out of the bedroom. So already like the story doesn't add up with what they were saying, which was that the fire was a low burning fire Mm -hmm. because he's He's now saying that he can't stand up. Yeah, he has to be on the floor. Okay. He said he thought he found one of them once, but it was just a doll. Being unable to bear the heat any longer and feeling like he was about to pass out, he stumbled down the corridor and out the front door trying to catch his breath, which is when he saw Diane Barbie and yelled for her to call the fire department. After she left, he insisted he tried without success to get back inside. The investigators asked him if he had any idea how the fire had started. He said he wasn't sure, but thought that it must have originated in the children's bedroom since that's where he first saw flames. He says that they were glowing like bright lights. He and Stacy used three space heaters to keep the house warm, and one of them was in the children's room. Those things are so dangerous. Yeah, and I was going to say, so I was really like surprised. I haven't used a space heater in years. So I was really surprised when I was looking for them, a lot of the like marketing for them was their safety features, which I'm now I'm like, "Oh, that's really really smart because mm-hmm. there have been so many in fires started through space space heaters." Yeah. So like, yeah, like ours like even if you move it just a little bit, if it mm-hmm. shakes a little bit, it just shuts off. Oh, interesting. Um if it tips It'll shut off. It has like an auto shut up o- shut off after a couple of hours. Just so so, like they've learned. Yeah, they've definitely learned. But
1: mm-hmm. but in the past they were absolutely in the dangerous. Past, they were just death traps, like literal yeah. death traps.
0: Anyways. He remembers teaching Amber not to play with it, adding that she got whoopings every once in a while for messing with it. He said that he didn't know if the heater which had an internal flame was turned on. What yes. The heck? That's how oh, they were back no. then. At trial, Vasquez testified that when he had checked the heater four days later, it was on the off position. Willingham speculated that the fire might have been started by something electrical because he had heard all of the popping and crackling mm-hmm. from the wires. Mm-hmm. And it smelled like wires like when his microwave had mm-hmm. exploded. Okay. When asked whether someone might have a motive to hurt his family, Todd said that he couldn't think of anyone that cold-blooded. I just don't understand why anybody would take them from me, you know? We had three of the most pretty babies anybody could ever ask for. Thinking of Amber, he said, to tell you the honest to God truth, I wish she hadn't woken me up. Oh. During the interrogation, Vasquez let Fogg take the lead. Vasquez turned to Willingham and asked a seemingly random question. Had he put on shoes before he fled the house? No, sir, Willingham replied. That answer had convinced Vasquez that Willingham had killed his children. What? If the floor had been soaked with a liquid accelerant and the fire had burned low... As he thought the evidence suggested, Willingham could not have run out of the house the way he had described without badly burning his feet, and a medical report had indicated that his feet had been unscathed. So in his head, Vasquez thought the way that the fire started was there was accelerant poured in the children's room, Mm -hmm. accelerant in like the corridor, Mm -hmm. and then accelerant at the front of the house. And so if that was the case, then Willingham's feet must have been burnt. Because the fire was supposed to be on the bottom. If he had run out the front door. Mm -hmm. So he had already made up that part in his mind. So the fact that his feet weren't burned Mm -hmm. means he's lying, which... Could also just mean that what he has made up in his mind is is not actually the way it happened. Right. And so that's what he's like. He takes that as, oh, so you're lying to me because clearly your feet should have been burned if you did run out Mm -hmm. this way. Okay. Willingham, however, continued to insist that when he left the house, the fire was still around the top of the walls and not the floor. I didn't have to jump through any flames, he said. Vasquez had already made up his mind that this was impossible and that Willingham had lit the fire as he was retreating, first torching the children's room, then the hallway, and then from the porch, the front door. Vasquez later said of Willingham, he told me the story of pure fabrication. He just talked and talked and talked, and all he did was lie.
1: Wow. Yeah. But wasn't the top of his hair burnt Singed. and his and his eyebrows too? Yeah. So how does he explain that if it
0: was supposed to be low? Yeah. There was no motive, which we'll get into here. Yeah. There was no clear motive. The children did have life insurance policies, but they amounted to only $15,000. And Stacy's grandfather, who had been paying for them, was listed as the primary beneficiary. Mm. So it's not even like he would have gotten anything. Gotten, from it. Gotten anything. Mm. Stacy told investigators that even though Willingham had hit her, uh, he had never abused the children. Our kids were spoiled rotten, she said, and she did not believe that Willingham could have ever killed them. Ultimately, authorities concluded that Willingham was a man without a conscience whose serial crimes had climaxed. Because he stole a couple things when he was younger? A bicycle. Okay. Mm -hmm. John Jackson, who was then the assistant district attorney in Corsicana, was assigned to prosecute Willingham's case. He later told the Dallas Morning News that he considered Willingham to be an utterly sociopathic individual who deemed his children an impediment to his lifestyle, or as the local district attorney, Pat Batchelor, put it, The children were interfering with his beer drinking and dart throwing. Wow, that's that's a lot of accusations. That's a lot of assumptions. Yeah. On the night of January 8, 1992, two weeks after the fire, Willingham was riding in a car with Stacy when SWAT team surrounded them, forcing them to the side of the road and arresting Todd. Willingham was charged with the murder, and because there were multiple victims under Texas law, he was eligible for the death penalty. Unlike many other prosecutors in the state, Jackson, who had ambitions of becoming a judge, was personally opposed to capital punishment. He also considered it to be wasteful. Because of the expense of litigation and the appeals process, it cost on average $2.3 million to execute a prisoner in Texas, about three times the cost of incarcerating someone for 40 years. Yet his boss, Batchelor, believed that, as he once put it, certain people who commit bad enough crimes give up the right to live and Jackson came to agree that the heinous nature of the crime in the Willingham case deserved death. Willingham couldn't afford to hire lawyers and was assigned two by the state. David Martin, a former state trooper, and Robert Dunn, a local defense attorney who represented everyone from alleged murderers to spouses in divorce cases. So he's not an expert. (laughs) He's not an expert. Okay, (laughs) And he also had like a quote in one of the articles that said something about you don't really have the luxury of being like a specific type of lawyer because then you'd you'd starve to death basically meaning like you had to be like a oh. jack of all trades to have because there wasn't enough work. cases in one field okay yeah but I get that's that. i mean that doesn't make it any better for todd who's trying to fight for his life no, and has someone who's not an expert in for a death penalty case yeah. that has to be an expert not long after Willingham's arrest, authorities received a message from a prison inmate named Johnny Webb, who was in the same jail as Willingham. Webb alleged that Willingham had confessed to him that he took some kind of lighter fluid, squirting it around the walls and the floor, and set a fire. The case against Willingham was considered airtight.
1: Really, with
0: the forensic files mm-hmm. and this like informant, I mean, there's no stopping them. Oh wait, is this snitch testimony? Mm-hmm. Jailhouse informant. <laughs> ah. Even so, several of Stacey's relatives who, unlike her, believed that Willingham was guilty, told Jackson that they preferred to avoid the anguish of a trial. And so, shortly before jury selection, Jackson approached Willingham's attorneys with an extraordinary offer. If their client pleaded guilty, the state would give him a life sentence. I was really happy when I thought we might have a deal to avoid the death penalty, Jackson recalls. Willingham's lawyers were equally pleased because they had little doubt that he had committed the murders and that if the case went to a jury, he would be found guilty and executed. Martin says, everyone thinks defense lawyers must believe their clients are innocent, but that's seldom true. Most of the time, they're guilty as sin. (laughs) That's his lawyers. (laughs) Oh, man. He also added of Willingham, all of the evidence showed that he was 100% guilty. He poured accelerant all over the house and put lighter fluid under the kids' beds. It was, he said, a classic arson case. There were puddle patterns all over the place, no disputing those. They advised Willingham that he should accept the offer, but he refused. The lawyers asked his father and stepmother to speak to him. In fact, according to Eugenia, Martin showed them photographs of the burned children and said, look what your son did.
1: Oh my God! You got to
0: talk to him into pleading or he's going to be executed. His parents did go see their son in jail, and although his father did not believe that he should plead guilty if he were innocent, his stepmother begged him to take the deal. Willingham was unwavering and refused to plead guilty to something he had not done. Yeah, His refusal to accept the deal confirmed the view of the prosecution, and even that of his defense lawyers, that he was an unrepentant killer. Oh my gosh. But he can do nothing right. Like, everything he does, they're like, yep, see? Proves you're guilty. He did it. You're
1: obviously a psychopath. Oh, this poor guy. He had no chance. No, he really didn't.
0: Mm-mm. I mean, like, minds were made. Yeah. No one wanted to look at, like, actual mm-hmm. facts. In August of 1992, the trial commenced, and Jackson and a team of prosecutors summoned a procession of witnesses, including Johnny Webb and the Barbies. The crux of the state's case remained the scientific evidence gathered by Vasquez and Fogg. On the stand, Vasquez detailed what he called more than 20 indicators of arson. The defense had tried to find a fire expert to counter Vasquez and Fogg's testimony, but the only one they contacted concurred with the prosecution, so they gave up. They contacted one one person person who Mm. happened to agree, and they were just like, okay, well, guess he did it. Guess he did it. The defense ended up only presenting one witness to the jury, the Willingham's babysitter, who said she could not believe that Willingham could have ever killed his children. Willingham had wanted to testify, but Martin and Dunn thought that he would make a bad witness, and the trial ended after only two days. Oh, wow. A death penalty trial. In two days. In two days. And only one person in favor mm-hmm. of the defendant, a babysitter. Yeah. During his closing arguments, Jackson said that the puddle configurations and pore patterns were Willingham's inadvertent confession burned into the floor. Showing a Bible that had been salvaged from the fire, Jackson paraphrased the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, Whomever shall harm one of my children, it's better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and for him to be cast in the sea. The jury was out for just about an hour before returning with a unanimous guilty verdict. As Vasquez put it, the fire does not lie. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1999. During the years between 92 and 99, Todd was becoming accustomed to life on death row. And for more of an inside look at this, I would recommend watching the movie Trial by Fire. Based on the research that I did for the episode, the movie seems pretty accurate while still giving you like that Hollywood drama that we love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, it was really, it was actually like a good movie. Uh-huh. Um, there's also a documentary called Incendiary, the Todd Willingham case available on iTunes and Vimeo. So the reason we fast forward a bit is so that I can introduce you to Elizabeth Gilbert. Gilbert is slash was, a French teacher and playwright from Houston, who had two children and had recently gone through a divorce. She had never visited a prison before, but several weeks earlier, a friend who worked at an organization that opposed the death penalty had encouraged her to volunteer as a pen pal for an inmate on death row. Not long after, a short letter arrived from Willingham. If you wish to write back, I would be honored to correspond with you, he said. He also asked if she might visit him. Perhaps out of a writer's curiosity, or perhaps because she didn't feel quite herself. She had just been upset by the news that her now ex-husband was also dying of cancer. Oh. She agreed and decided to visit Willingham at the penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, a place that inmates refer to as the death pit. A plexiglass window separated Willingham from Gilbert. He greeted her politely and seemed grateful that she had come. After his conviction... Stacy, his ex-wife, mm-hmm. wife, had campaigned for his release. She wrote to Ann Richards, the governor of Texas, saying, I know him in ways that no one else does when it comes to our children. Therefore, I believe that there is no way he could have possibly committed this crime. But within a year, Stacy had filed for divorce and Willingham had few visitors except for his parents who drove from Oklahoma to see him once a month. I really have no one outside my parents to remind me that I am a human being, not the animal that the state professes I am, he told Gilbert. Their first visit lasted two hours, and afterward they continued to correspond. Gilbert was struck by his letters, which seemed introspective and were not at all what she had expected. So she agreed to visit him again, and when she returned several weeks later, he was visibly moved. They kept exchanging letters, and she began asking him about the fire. He insisted that he was innocent and that if someone had poured accelerant through the house and lit it, that the killer remained free. But Gilbert wasn't naive and continued to assume that he was guilty. Still, she had become curious about the case. And one day that fall, she drove down to the courthouse in Corsicana to review the trial records. So at first she's just curious and Mm -hmm. she's just like, no, I'm just kind of here. Like, I think you're guilty. Like, I'm pretty sure you're guilty, but like, whatever. But as she examined the eyewitness accounts, she noticed several contradictions. Diane Barbie had reported that before the authorities arrived at the fire, Willingham never tried to get back into the house, yet she had been absent for some time while calling the fire department, so how would she have known? Yeah, that's true. Meanwhile, her daughter Buffy had reported witnessing Willingham on the porch breaking a window in an apparent effort to reach his children, and the firemen and police on the scene had described Willingham frantically trying to get into the house. Oh yeah, they had to restrain him from getting into the house. And Father Moynihan received a black eye. Yeah. The eyewitness testimony also grew more damning after authorities had concluded in the beginning of January of 1992 that Willingham was likely guilty of murder. So I think once the town started hearing that the police department thought he was responsible for Mm -hmm. it, they also started believing that. And so what they remembered started shifting. In Diane Barbie's initial statement to authorities, she had portrayed Willingham as hysterical and described the front of the house as exploding. But on January 4th, after arson investigators began suspecting Willingham of murder, Barbie suggested that he could have gone back inside to rescue his children, for at the outset she had only seen smoke coming from out of the front of the house, and the smoke was not real thick. An even-starker shift occurred with Father Moynihan's testimony. In his first statement, he had depicted Willingham as a devastated father who had to be repeatedly restrained from risking his life. Yet as investigators were preparing to arrest Willingham, he concluded that Willingham had been too emotional and had expressed a gut feeling that Willingham had something to do with the fire. Okay. So he's not emotional enough. Mm-hmm. He's too emotional, too emotional. He was doing too much. He was not doing enough. There was nothing he could have done differently for Mm-mm. people to have been like, oh, maybe he's innocent. They were going to make it out to be guilty no matter what he did. No matter what he did. Dozens of studies have shown that witnesses' memories of events often change when they are supplied with new contextual information. Itiel Dror, a cognitive psychologist who had done extensive research on eyewitness testimony and expert testimony in criminal investigations, says, The mind is not a passive machine. Once you believe in something, once you expect something, it changes the way you perceive the information and the way your memory recalls it. After her visit to the courthouse, Gilbert kept wondering about Willingham's motive, and she pressed him on the matter. In response, he wrote of the death of his children. I do not talk about it much anymore and it's still a very powerful emotional pain inside of my being he admitted that he had been a sorry ass husband who had hit stacy something he deeply regretted but he said that he had loved his children and would never have hurt them fatherhood he said had changed him he stopped being a hoodlum and settled down and became a new man nearly three months before the fire he and stacy who had never married wedded a small ceremony in his hometown of ardmore He said that the prosecution had seized upon incidents from his past and from the day of the fire to create a portrait of a demon. For instance, Willingham said he had moved the car during the fire because remember someone pointed that out. So he says that he did that simply because he didn't want it to explode by the house further threatening his children. So he's yeah. still thinking of his kids. Mm-hmm. The fire was in his garage and all these windows are exploding mm-hmm. and fire is coming out of them. So if it gets to I the probably gas. wouldn't have even thought of that. But the fact that he did, because he was so concerned for his children, yeah. people are now like shifting what they saw. Right. Like, oh, he just cared about the car. It's like, no. They're changing the narrative. Yeah. Gilbert was unsure what to make of his story. So she began to approach people who were involved in the case, asking them questions. Over the next few weeks, Gilbert continued to track down sources Many of them, including the Barbies, remained convinced that Willingham was guilty, but several of his friends and relatives had doubts, and so did some people in law enforcement. Willingham's former probation officer in Oklahoma, Polly Gooden, said that Willingham had never demonstrated bizarre or sociopathic behavior. Several months before the fire, Willingham tracked Gooden down at her office and proudly showed her photographs of Stacy and the kids. He wanted me to know he'd been doing okay. Eventually, Gilbert returned to Corsicana to interview Stacy, who had agreed to meet at the bed and breakfast where Gilbert was staying. According to a tape recording of the conversation, Stacy said that nothing unusual had happened in the days before the fire. She and Willingham had not fought and were preparing for the holidays. Stacy also pointed out that although Vasquez, the arson expert, had recalled finding the space heater off, Stacy was sure that at least on the day of the incident, which had been a cold winter morning, it had been on. I remember turning it down, she recalled. I always thought, gosh, could Amber have put something in there? Stacy added that more than once she had caught Amber putting things too close to it. Though only the babysitter had appeared as a witness for the defense during the main trial, several family members, including Stacy, testified during the penalty phase, asking the jury to spare Willingham's life. When Stacy was on the stand, Jackson grilled her about the significance of Willingham's very large tattoo of a skull encircled by some kind of serpent. "It's just a tattoo," Stacy responded. "He just likes skulls and snakes, is that what you're saying?" "No, he just had a tattoo on him. Like they're trying to make something out of this, like like there's some tattoo. hidden meaning behind yeah. it." The prosecution cited such evidence in asserting that Willingham fit the profile of a Sociopath and brought forth two medical experts to confirm the theory. Neither had ever met Willingham. One of them was Tim Gregory, a psychologist with a master's degree in marriage and family issues, who had previously gone goose hunting with Jackson and had not published any research in the field of sociopathic behavior. His practice was devoted to family counseling. At one point, Jackson showed Gregory exhibit number 60, a photograph of an Iron Maiden poster that had hung in the Willingham house and asked the psychologist to interpret it.
1: Iron Maiden is the rock band. It's just a right? rock band. So if you want to analyze the poster of a
0: rock band, you should analyze all of their followers and the musicians. Not just the poster. Oh my gosh. This one is a picture of a skull with a fist being punched through the skull, Gregory said. The image displayed violence and death. Gregory looked up photographs of other music posters owned by Willingham. There's a hooded skull with wings and a hatchet, Gregory continued. And all of these are in fire depicting. It reminds me of something like hell. And there's a picture, a Led Zeppelin picture of a falling angel. I see there's an association many times with cultive type of activities, a focus on death and dying. Many times, individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic type activities. Oh, Beware. so all
1: of um, Led Zeppelin fans and Iron Maiden fans, you guys are all part Satanists. of cults,
0: apparently, according <laughs> to this guy. Yeah. yeah they're
1: super popular too
0: they're super popular (laughs) not my cup of tea but they're everywhere yeah and they have been for a really long time Mm -hmm. like they've been around for a really long time Mm -hmm. and it's like i don't think they're calling for no crimes or anything my goodness the other medical expert was james p grigson a forensic psychiatrist he testified so often for the prosecution and capital punishment cases that he had become known as dr death what a nickname to be given So that's an awful nickname Mm -hmm. to have. Grigson suggested that Willingham was an extremely severe sociopath and that no pill or treatment could help him. Grigson had previously used nearly the same words in helping to secure a death sentence against Randall Dale Adams, who had been convicted of murdering a police officer in 1977. After Adams, who had no prior criminal record, spent a dozen years on death row and once came within 72 hours of being executed, New evidence emerged that absolved him and was released. In 1995, three years after Willingham's case, Grigson was expelled from the American Psychiatric Association for violating ethics. The association stated that Grigson had repeatedly arrived at a psychiatric diagnosis without first having examined the individuals in question and for indicating, while testifying in court as an expert witness, that he could predict with 100% certainty that the individuals would engage in future violent acts. Nope. Gotta get rid of him. Get him out. After speaking to Stacy, Gilbert had one more person she wanted to interview. The jailhouse informant, Johnny Webb, who was incarcerated in Iowa Park, Texas. So let's get into Webb. Webb, who had a lengthy rap sheet, had just been jailed for robbing a woman at knife point. By his own admission, Webb was stealing to support his drug and alcohol habits and was still traumatized after being sexually assaulted by another inmate during a previous stay in jail. Webb repeated for her what he had said in court, that he had passed by Willingham's cell. As they spoke through a food slot, Willingham broke down and told him that he had intentionally set the house on fire. It was hard to believe that Willingham, who had otherwise insisted on his innocence, had suddenly confessed to an inmate he barely knew. The conversation had purportedly taken place by a speaker system that allowed any of the guards to listen in, an unlikely spot for an inmate to reveal any kind of secret." What's more, Webb alleged that Willingham had told him that Stacy had hurt one of the kids and that the fire was set up to cover for the crime. The autopsies, however, had never revealed any bruising or signs of trauma to the children's bodies. However, in two taped interviews with the Innocence Project conducted almost 22 years after his trial testimony, Webb described how the Navarro County Sheriff, Leslie Cotton, who pulled him out of his cell after he was seen talking briefly with Willingham, Webb said that Cotton and then Jackson urged him to try to talk to Willingham about the fire to see whether he might incriminate himself. Webb said he was taken from the jail to Jackson's office in the courthouse where Jackson laid out photographs of the fire scene that included the bodies of the little girls. Ultimately, Jackson told Webb, if you help me, that robbery will disappear. Even if you're convicted now, I can get it off for you later. And thus began the very twisted relationship between Webb, the informant, Jackson the prosecutor and Pierce the wealthy rancher.
1: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You can never offer It's to just an crazy how many things are happening.
0: Yeah. Willingham is in death row mm-hmm. or on death row, like just literally trying to survive. Mm-hmm. This random playwright comes in is like, "Your case is really interesting. Let me try to like see what's going on." Right. And then while all of that's happening, you've got these three dummies like trying to take this poor guy down. Mhm. Webb had first met Charles Pierce, who was one of Corsicana's most respected citizens. So just as a background, um, Pierce's father had been the first president of Colgate Palm Olive after the companies merged. So anyways, that's how Pierce has all his money. His dad had, had left him like a bunch of money when he passed away. Okay. Webb had met Pierce through two friends that Pierce had helped after they were convicted of minor offenses. Webb said that after Jackson spoke to him about testifying against Willingham, Pierce visited him and told him that he would help him if he helped Jackson. Mm -hmm. So it's like Mm -hmm. this three-way thing Mm -hmm. going on. Pierce had become fascinated with law enforcement, spending hours at the Navarro County Courthouse and befriending prosecutors, judges, and other court officials. Pierce's secretary during those years said that she often was sending letters and money to four or five different prison inmates on Pierce's behalf. She added that Pierce was a good friend of district attorney Bachelor and Jackson. This is a dangerous mix, isn't it? It's a dangerous mix. His daughter says like, no, like he really was just really into helping people. But to mm-hmm. me, it was almost like this. I don't know if I can put it into words, but like, like he was wanting getting to some feel self-gratification. Yes, from it. Yeah, like wanting to feel like, oh, I'm like this, like a God complex. OK, two months after the Willingham trial, a typed unsigned note to the Navarro County clerk marked per John Jackson, instructed the clerk on how to respond to the Texas Department of Corrections if prison officials inquired about Webb's status. The note said that Webb had not been convicted of first-degree aggravated robbery, as he had just testified in court, but only of second-degree robbery. If TDC calls and wants to know which one is correct, tell them robbery with no deadly weapon used. The note also explained the change This is what John Jackson wants it to be. They were downplaying his crimes. I mean, he literally changed what he was convicted of. Oh, God. And that was just the first of many steps Jackson took on Webb's behalf over the next several years. Jackson would make sure that Webb was never in danger in prison by writing to prison officials requesting he be kept safe as he had risked himself by testifying in the Willingham case. And that in the event of a reversal, he needed to count on Webb's continued cooperation over the next three years. As Jackson kept in touch with Webb through correspondence between Webb and Pierce, Pierce would deposit more than $2,000 into Webb's prison commissary. That's a lot. So basically Webb would write to Pierce and be like, this is what's going on. And then Pierce would then give that information to Jackson so Mm -hmm. that Jackson could then do stuff. But there was never really any like direct link between Webb and Jackson. So they made sure to keep that. Oh, they purposely were trying to keep that separate. Yeah, so that it wouldn't be tied back to jackson oh, yeah so God. that that way jackson could say oh i have no idea what's going on so They knew they were doing something but, wrong oh yeah 100 percent. like they knew like go through pierce who's just this like random rancher
1: mm-hmm. who
0: likes to help prison inmates so it's not that weird that he wants to help you right and then he's communicating directly with jackson in 1995 webb wrote to pierce that a guard at the huntsville penitentiary had urged him to recant his testimony, possibly to protect himself against reprisals from other inmates. Pierce wrote back that he had immediately passed along Webb's letter to Jackson. Jackson's campaign for Webb's early release escalated in May 1996 after Webb reported that he continued to receive threats and demanded to be transferred to federal prison or the Navarro County Jail. Six weeks later, on July 15, 1996, at Jackson's request, Judge Kenneth Buck Douglas who had presided over Willingham's trial and sentenced Webb to prison in 1992, entered a new judgment in Webb's case. The crime was officially recorded as a conviction for second-degree robbery instead of an aggravated robbery, in effect reducing the time Webb was required to wait before seeking parole. Despite the high-level attention, Webb grew impatient. He warned Pierce that he was thinking of contacting the news media because the prosecution had failed to help him after he provided critical testimony. Pierce advised against it. Webb's request for early release was denied, but Jackson did not relent, filing for clemency on Webb's behalf. The application included letters from the robbery victim as well as from Batchelor agreeing that Webb had been punished enough. Batchelor's letter stressed that the prosecution wanted to ensure Webb's cooperation as long as Willingham was still filing appeals. Any threat to the public by the early release of Webb is far outweighed by the possibility that Willingham might be successful. Mm -mm. Shortly after Jackson's election as a judge in 1996, he organized another flurry of letters to the parole board. This time, Judge Douglas, Sheriff Cotton, and Jackson all insisted that Webb's sentence was excessive and he should be released. Upon ascending to the bench, Jackson issued a warrant to prison officials requiring Webb be brought to Navarro County for a hearing related to protective custody pending executive clemency. No records were ever found showing that such a hearing was ever held. (gasps) Webb's clemency request was denied. After he was paroled in 1998, Webb immediately went to see Pierce, who gave him a cashier's check for $10,000, which he used to buy a pickup truck. Pierce also agreed to pay Webb's $10,000 tuition at Ocean Corp, a commercial diving and underwater welding school in Houston. Pierce funneled $4,000 a month to Webb by wiring the money to the school, and then officials then issued him a check. Like a refund with excess money so pierce would send it to the school and then the school would give it to they're sneaky they know Mm -hmm. what they're
1: doing is wrong and that's the
0: frustrating part but webb was dismissed from the diving school in june of 1998 after he was jailed on a houston drug charge in his arrest records however webb listed a thousand dollar stipend from pierce as his only source of income in august 1998 webb pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison At the same time, his parole on the robbery charge was revoked, which kept Webb in prison until 2007. As soon as Webb returned to prison, though, Pierce resumed sending money to Webb's commissary account with a $200 deposit in the fall of 1998 and $400 in 1999, according to prison records. In February 2000, Webb wrote to Pierce saying that he was scared because other inmates had learned he had testified against Willingham. He said it was all over the unit that he was a snitch. Webb said he had no choice but to recant his testimony. So in March of 2000, Webb submitted a handwritten document titled Motion to Recant Testimony to the Navarro County District Attorney's Office. Webb said that he was made to lie and that Willingham is innocent of all charges. A handwritten note on the document says, give to District Judge Jackson, and then dated, 4-3-2000. Why would he want to give that to Jackson? Like specifically, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think it's because he's the only one that he's been working with. I don't think that he did it thinking like nothing would ever happen or anything. I think in his head, it was just like, I need to get this to Jackson. Uh-huh. Um, but the motion was never included in Willingham's court file nor disclosed to Willingham's attorneys. And Webb eventually dropped the matter. So nothing came of the mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. recantation. In January 2004, weeks before Willingham's scheduled execution, his attorney filed for a reprieve. He sought 90 days to investigate an allegation that Webb had received a vehicle after he was released from prison in 1998 and indications that Webb's testimony had been coached. Judge Jackson, yes, the same Jackson, opposed the stay and flatly denied once again that Webb had received any benefits in exchange for his testimony. I did not offer Webb any consideration for his cooperation, Jackson declared. Having previously insisted that Webb's punishment was excessive, Jackson now described it as entirely adequate. According to a 2004 study by the Center of Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University Law School, lying police and jailhouse informants are the leading cause of wrongful convictions and capital cases in the United States. Mm -hmm. At the time that Webb came forward against Willingham, he was facing charges of robbery and forgery. During Willingham's trial, another inmate planned to testify that he had overheard Webb saying to another prisoner that he was hoping to get time cut, but the testimony was ruled inadmissible because it was hearsay. In recent years, questions have mounted over whether the system is fail-safe. Since 1976, more than 130 people on death row have been exonerated. DNA testing, which was developed in the 80s, saved 17 of them, but the technique can be used only in rare circumstances. Barry Shack, a co-founder of the Innocence Project, which has used DNA testing to exonerate prisoners, estimates that about 80% of felonies do not involve biological evidence. Mm-hmm. Which is also crazy because, like, don't death row inmates spend, like, a really long time on death row before mm-hmm. being they executed? Do. So a lot of the people who might be on death row now probably didn't have any DNA evidence collected at the time of the crime mm-hmm. because that wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. And so even if there was evidence collected like that could now exonerate them that's Uh just not a possibility so it's like how do you prove it if dna is kind of like the main thing people are using to right like exonerate these people in 2000 after 13 people on death row in illinois were exonerated george ryan who was then governor of the state suspended the death penalty though he had been a longtime advocate of capital punishment he declared that he could no longer support a system that has come so close to the ultimate nightmare the state's taking of innocent life Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor has said that the execution of a legally and factually innocent person would be a constitutionally intolerable event. But like, here's the thing. I mean, like, we've been talking about this, like, if that were to happen, Mm -hmm. which is literally happening in this case, Mm -hmm. who's going to be held accountable? How will they be held accountable? Like, Mm -hmm. who's going to push for that accountability? Like, everyone has qualified immunity. No one will be held accountable. That's what I'm saying. Like, so, like, nothing's going to happen. There's no... (laughs) Yeah, there's no repercussions. On October 31st, 1997, the Court of Criminal Appeals denied Willingham's writ. After Willingham filed another writ of habeas corpus, this time in federal court, he was granted a temporary stay. Willingham, now entering his final stage of appeals, increasingly relied upon Gilbert to investigate his case and for emotional support. Together, they poured over clues and testimony. Gilbert says that she would send... Willingham's lawyers leads to follow up on, but nothing seemed to come of them. In 2002, a federal district court of appeals denied Willingham's writ without even a hearing. Mm. He appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but in 2003, he was notified that it had declined to hear his case. He soon received a court order announcing that he would be executed on February 17, 2004, at the Department of Criminal Justice in Huntsville, Texas. His only remaining recourse was to appeal to the Republican governor of Texas, Rick Perry, for clemency. The process considered the last gatekeeper to the executioner had been called by the U.S. Supreme Court the fail-safe in our criminal justice system. In January 2004, Dr. Gerald Hurst, who's a badass, An acclaimed scientist and fire investigator received a file describing all of the evidence of arson gathered in Willingham's case. Gilbert had come across Hearst's name and along with one of Willingham's relatives had contacted him seeking his help. So this was just kind of like a Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. And after their pleas, Hearst agreed to look at the case pro bono and Reeves, Willingham's lawyer, had sent him the relevant documents in the hope that there were grounds for clemency. Hearst had left the defense industry and went on to invent the Mylar balloon, an improved version of liquid paper, and Kinepak, a kind of explosive (laughs) that reduces the risk of accidental detonation. Mm, Right? Interesting. I'm telling you, he's like kind of a really big deal. (laughs) Because of his extraordinary knowledge of fire and explosive, companies in civil litigation frequently sought his help in determining the cause of a blaze. By the 90s, Hearst had begun devoting significant time to criminal arson cases, and as he was exposed to the methods of local and state fire investigators, he was shocked by what he saw. Many arson investigators, it turned out, had only a high school education. In most states, in order to be certified, investigators had to take a 40-hour course on fire investigation and pass a written exam. Oh. Often, the bulk of an investigator's training came on the job learning from quote-unquote old-timers in the field who passed down a body of wisdom about the telltale signs of arson, even though a study in 1977 warned that there was nothing in the scientific literature to substantiate their validity. Great. 40 hours, that's it. 40? Hours. So we could become... I am an expert of so many things. There's so many documentaries I've watched for 40 hours that I could be an expert And we've done so much research for this podcast. We're experts experts in all the fields. Hire us. We're experts. Mm. So he received the files on Willingham's case only a few weeks before he was scheduled to be executed. And as Hearst looked through the case records, he was struck by Vasquez's claim that the Willingham blaze had burned fast and hot because of a liquid accelerant. The notion that a flammable or combustible liquid caused flames to reach higher temperatures had been repeated in court by arson sleuths for decades. Yet the theory was nonsense. Experiments had proved that wood and gasoline-fueled fires burn at essentially the same temperature. Mm -hmm. Vasquez and Fogg had cited as proof of arson the fact that the front door's aluminum threshold had melted. The only thing that can cause that to react is an accelerant, Vasquez had said. Hearst was incredulous. A natural wood fire can reach temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, far hotter than the melting point for aluminum alloys, which ranges from 1,000 to 1,200 degrees. And like many other investigators, Vasquez and Fogg mistakenly assumed that wood charring beneath the aluminum threshold was evidence that, as Vasquez put it, a liquid accelerant flowed underneath and burned. Hearst had conducted myriad experiments showing that such charring was caused simply by the aluminum conducting so much heat. Mm. In fact, when liquid accelerant is poured under a threshold, a fire will extinguish because of a lack of oxygen, which is basic like fire chemistry, knowledge, chemistry. Yeah. You need oxygen for Mm -hmm. a fire to burn. Mm -hmm. Other scientists had reached the same conclusion. Liquid accelerants can no more burn under an aluminum threshold than can grease burn in a skillet, even with a loose-fitting lid. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Hearst then examined and Vasquez's claim that the brown stains on Willingham's front porch were evidence of a liquid accelerant, which had not had time to soak into the concrete. Hearst had previously performed a test in his garage in which he poured charcoal lighter fluid on the concrete floor and lit it. When the fire went out, there were no brown stains, only smudges of soot. Hearst had run the same experiment many times with different kinds of liquid accelerants, and the result was always the same. Brown stains were common in fires. They were usually composed of rust or gunk from charred debris that had mixed with water and fire hoses. Another crucial piece of evidence implicating Willingham was the crazed glass that Vasquez had attributed to the rapid heating from a fire fueled with a liquid accelerant. Yet, in November of 91, a team of fire investigators had inspected 50 houses in the hills of Oakland, California, which had been ravaged by brush fires. In a dozen houses, the investigators discovered crazed glass, even though a liquid accelerant had not been used. Most of the houses were on the outskirts of the blaze where firefighters had shot streams of water. Thermal shock had caused glass to contract so quickly that it settled disjointly. The investigators then tested this hypothesis in a laboratory. When they heated glass, nothing happened, but each time they applied water to the heated glass, the intricate patterns appeared. Hearst had seen the same phenomenon when he blowtorched and cooled glass during his research at Cambridge. In his report, Hearst wrote that Vasquez and Fogg's notion of crazed glass was no more than an old wives' tale. Of course, it was. Hearst then confronted some of the most devastating arson evidence against Willingham. The burn trailer, the pore patterns, and the puddle configurations, the V-shape, and other burn marks indicating that the fire had multiple points of origin, such as the burning underneath the children's beds. There is also the positive test for mineral spirits by the front door, and Willingham's seemingly implausible story that he had run out of the house without burning his bare feet. As Hurst read through more of the files, he noticed that Willingham and his neighbors had described the windows in the front of the house suddenly exploding and flames roaring forth. It was then that Hearst thought of the legendary Lime Street fire, one of the most pivotal in the history of arson investigation. On the evening of October 15, 1990, a 35-year-old man named Gerald Wayne Lewis was found standing in front of his house on Lime Street in Jacksonville, Florida, holding his three-year-old son. His two-story wood frame home was engulfed in flames. By the time the fire had been extinguished, six people were dead, including his wife. When fire investigators examined the scene, they found the classic signs of arson. Low burns along the walls and floors, poor patterns and puddle configurations, and a burn trailer running from the living room into the hallway. Lewis claimed that the fire had started accidentally on a couch in the living room. His son had been playing with matches but a V-shaped pattern by one of the doors suggested that the fire had originated elsewhere. Some witnesses told authorities that Lewis seemed too calm during the fire and had never tried to get help. According to the Los Angeles Times, Lewis had previously been arrested for abusing his wife, who had taken out a restraining order against him. After a chemist said that he had detected the presence of gasoline on Lewis's clothes and shoes, A report by the sheriff's office concluded, the fire was started as a result of petroleum product being poured on the front porch, foyer, living room, stairwell, and the second floor bedroom. Lewis was arrested and charged with six counts of murder and faced the death penalty. Okay, so similar case almost? Very similar. To discover the truth, investigators with the backing of the prosecution decided to conduct an elaborate experiment to recreate the fire scene. Local officials gave the investigators permission to use a condemned house next to the Lewis home, which was about to be torn down. The two houses were virtually identical, and investigators refurbished the condemned house with the same kind of carpeting, curtains, and furniture that had been in the Lewis home. The scientists also wired the building with heat and gas sensors that could withstand fire. The cost of the experiment came to $20,000 without using liquid accelerant. Lentini and DeHaan set the couch in the living room on fire, expecting that the experiment would demonstrate that Lewis's version of the events was implausible. Okay, but investigators watched as the fire quickly consumed the couch, sending upward a plume of smoke that hit the ceiling and spread outward, creating a thick layer of hot gases overhead, an efficient radiator of heat. Within three minutes, this cloud, absorbing more gases from the fire below, was banking down the walls and filling the living room. As the cloud approached the floor, its temperature rose, in some areas to more than 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit. Suddenly, the entire room exploded in flames as the radiant heat ignited every piece of furniture, every curtain, and every possible fuel source, even the carpeting. Then the window shattered. The fire had reached what is called flashover, which is important because it's also what's Ended up happening at the Willingham home. Okay. So flashover is the point at which radiant heat causes a fire in a room to become a room on fire. Arson investigators knew about the concept of flashover, but it was widely believed to take much longer to occur, especially without a liquid accelerant. From a single fuel source, a couch, the room had reached flashover in four and a half minutes. Because all of the furniture in the living room had ignited, the blaze went from a fuel-controlled fire... To a ventilation controlled fire, or what scientists call post flashover. During post flashover, the path of the fire depends on new sources of oxygen from an open door or an open window. One of the fire investigators who had been standing by an open door in the living room escaped moments before the oxygen starved fire roared out of the room and into the hallway, a fireball that caused the corridor to go quickly into flashover as well, propelling the fire out the front door and onto the porch. After the fire was extinguished, the investigators inspected the hallway and living room. On the floor were irregularly shaped burn patterns that perfectly resembled pore patterns and puddle configurations. It turned out that these classic signs of arson can also appear on their own after flashover. With the naked eye, it is impossible to distinguish between the pore patterns and puddle configurations caused by an accelerant, and those caused naturally by post-flashover. The only reliable way to tell the difference is to take samples from the burn patterns and test them in a laboratory for the presence of flammable or combustible liquids. During the Lime Street experiment, other things happened that were supposed to occur only in a fire fueled by liquid accelerant, charring along the base of the walls and doorways, and burning under furniture. There is also a V shaped pattern by the living room doorway, far from where the fire had started on the couch. In a small fire, a V shaped burn mark may pinpoint where a fire began, but during post flashover, these patterns can occur repeatedly when various objects ignite. Mm. One of the investigators muttered that they had just helped prove the defense's case. (laughs) Given the reasonable (laughs) doubt raised by the experiment, the charges against Lewis were soon dropped. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. The LimeStream experiment had demolished prevailing notions about fire behavior. Subsequent tests by scientists showed that during post-flashover, burning under beds and furniture was common. Entire doors were consumed and aluminum thresholds melted. Hearst next examined a floor plan of Willingham's house that Vasquez had drawn which delineated all the purported pore patterns and puddle configurations. Because the windows had blown out of the children's room, Hearst knew that the fire had reached flashover. With his finger, Hearst traced along Vasquez's diagram, the burn trailer that had gone from the children's room turned right in the hallway and headed out the front door. John Jackson, the prosecutor, had stated that the path was so bizarre that it had to have been caused by a liquid accelerant. But Hearst concluded that it was a natural product of the dynamics of fire during post-flashover. Willingham had fled out the front door and the fire simply followed the ventilation path toward Mm, the opening. Similarly, when Willingham had broken the windows in the children's room, flames had shot outward. Mm -hmm. Hearst recalled that Vasquez and Fogg had considered it impossible for Willingham to run down the burning hallway without scorching his bare feet. But if the pore pattern and puddle configurations were a result of flashover, Hearst reasoned that they were consistent with Willingham's explanation of events. When Willingham exited his Bedroom, the hallway was not yet on fire. The flames were contained within the children's bedroom where along the ceiling he saw bright flash where along the ceiling he saw the bright lights. Just as the investigators safely stood by the door in the Lime Street experiment seconds before flashover, Willingham could have stood close to the children's room without being burned. Prior to the Lime Street case, fire investigators had generally assumed that carbon monoxide diffuses quickly through a house during a fire. In fact, up until flashover, levels of carbon monoxide can be remarkably low beneath and outside the thermal cloud. By the time the Corsicana fire achieved flashover, Willingham had already fled outside and was in the front yard. Vasquez had made a videotape of the fire scene, and Hearst looked at the footage of the burn trailer. Even after repeated viewings, he could not detect three points of origin as Vasquez had. And Fogg later stated that he had also seen a continuous trailer and disagreed with Vasquez, but added that nobody from the prosecution or the defense ever asked him on the stand about his opinion on the subject. So he just never said anything, Mm -hmm. even though they were both the investigators. After Hearst had reviewed Fogg and Vasquez's list of more than 20 arson indicators, he believed that only one had any potential of validity. The positive test for mineral spirits by the threshold of the front door, But why had fire investigators obtained a positive reading only in that one location? According to and vasquezs theory of the crime, Willingham had poured accelerant throughout the children's room and down the hallway. Officials had tested extensively in these areas, including where all the pore patterns and puddle configurations were, and turned up nothing. So Jackson said that he never understood why they weren't able to recover positive tests in these parts. Hurst found it hard to imagine Willingham pouring accelerant on the front porch where neighbors could have seen him. Mm -hmm. Scanning the files for clues, he noticed a photograph of the porch taken before the fire, which had been entered into evidence. Sitting on the tiny porch was a charcoal grill. The porch was where the family barbecued. Court testimonies from witnesses confirmed that there had been a grill along with a container of lighter fluid and that both had been burned when the fire roared onto the porch during post-flashover. By the time Vasquez inspected the house, the grill had been removed from the porch during cleanup. Though he cited the container of lighter fluid in his report, he made no mention of the grill. At the trial, he insisted that he had never been told of the grill's earlier placement. Mm-hmm. Other authorities were aware of the grill but did not see its relevance. Hearst, however, was convinced that he had solved the mystery. When firefighters had blasted the porch with water, they had likely spread charcoal lighter fluid from the melted container. Hearst's findings had helped to exonerate more than 10 people. He even reviewed the scientific evidence against Willingham's friend, Ernest Willis, who had been on death row for a strikingly similar arson charge. Hearst says, It was like I was looking at the same case, just change the names. Mm-hmm. In his report on the Willis case, Hearst concluded that not a single item of physical evidence supports a finding of arson. A second fire expert hired by Ori White, the new district attorney in Willis's district, concurred. And after 17 years on death row, Willis was set free. On February 13th, four days before Willingham was scheduled to be executed, he got a call from Reeves, his attorney. Reeves told him that the 15 members of the Board of Pardons and Paroles, which reviews an application for clemency, had been sent Hearst's report and had made their decision. The vote was unanimous, and Reeves could not offer an explanation as to why it had been denied.
1: Oh, no.
0: The board deliberates in secrets and members are not bound by any specific criteria. Mm. The board members didn't have to even review Willingham's materials and usually don't debate a case in person. Rather, they cast their votes by facts. A process that has been known as death by facts.
1: How is that a part of our (sighs) criminal justice system? How is that? I don't know. This is odd.
0: So they have no idea if they even like read. No. Through the report. So the documents show that they received the report, but neither office has any records of anyone acknowledging it, Mm. taking note of its significance, responding to it, or calling any attention to it within the government. Mm -mm. The only reasonable conclusion is that the governor's office and the Board of Pardons and Paroles ignored scientific evidence. Lafayette Collins, who was a member of the board at the time, said, you don't vote guilt or innocence. You don't retry the trial. You just make sure everything is in order and there are no glaring errors. He noted that although the rules allowed for a hearing to consider important new evidence, in my time there, there had never been one called. When asked why Hearst's report didn't constitute evidence of glaring errors, he said, we get all kinds of reports, but we don't have the mechanisms to vet them. Alvin Shaw, another member of the board at the time, said that the case didn't ring a bell, adding angrily, why would I want to talk about it? Hearst calls the board's actions unconscionable. Though Reeves told Willingham that there was still a chance that Governor Perry might grant a 30-day stay, Willingham began to prepare his last will and testament. He had earlier written Stacy a letter apologizing for not being a better husband and thanking mm-hmm. her for everything she had done, especially giving him th- their three daughters. He asked Stacy if his tombstone could be erected next to their children's graves and Stacy, who had for so long expressed belief in Willingham's innocence, had recently taken her first look at the original court records and arson findings. Unaware of Hearst's report, she had determined that Willingham was guilty and denied him his dying wish, later telling a reporter, he took my kids away from me. This guy. I feel so I bad feel, for him. Uh, wait, hold on. Okay. And so on February 17th, the day he was set to die, Willingham's parents and several relatives gathered in the prison visiting room. Plexiglass still separated Willingham from them. As Willingham looked at the group, he kept asking where Gilbert was. And so where was Gilbert? Mm-hmm. So she had been recently driving home from a store when another car ran a red light and smashed into her. Oh, no. While she was an intensive care unit, she had tried to get a message to Willingham, but apparently failed. Gilbert's daughter later read a letter that Willingham had sent her, telling her how much he had grown to love her. Gilbert, who spent years in physical rehabilitation, gradually regaining motion in her arms and upper body, says, All this time, I thought I was saving Willingham, and I realized then that he was saving me, giving me the strength to get through this, and I know one day I will walk again, and I know it's because Willingham showed me the kind of courage it takes to survive. Oh, So Willingham had requested a final meal, and at 4 p.m. on the 17th, he was served three barbecued pork ribs, two orders of onion rings, fried okra, three beef enchiladas with cheese, and two slices of lemon cream pie. He received word that Governor Perry had refused to grant him a stay. Mm. The warden told Willingham that it was time, and Willingham, refusing to assist in the process, lay down and was carried into a chamber eight feet wide and ten feet long. The walls were painted green, and in the center of the room where an electric chair used to be was a sheeted gurney. Several guards strapped Willingham down with leather belts, snapping buckles across his arms, legs, and chest. A medical team then inserted IVs into his arms. Each official had a separate role in the process so that no one person felt responsible for taking a life. Willingham had asked that his parents and family not be present in the galley during this process, but as he looked out, he could see Stacy watching. Just before Willingham received the lethal injection, he was asked if he had any last words, and he said, The only statement I want to make is that I am an innocent man convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return, so the earth shall become my throne. The warden then pushed a remote control, and sodium thiopental, a barbiturate, was pumped into Willingham's body. Then came a second drug, pancoronium bromide, which paralyzes the diaphragm, making it impossible to breathe. Mm. And finally, a third drug, potassium chloride, filled his veins until his heart stopped at 6.20 p.m. On his death certificate, the cause was listed as homicide. Is that common? I guess so. So that's a really sad story of Todd Willingham. What happened to him is awful. There is obviously so many things that could have stopped this from happening. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a lot of people, I think, that turned like blind eyes Mm -hmm. so that they didn't have to take accountability Mm -hmm. for what, you know, what their role in this case was. But I guess if there had to be a bright spot, it's everything that happened after he was executed. So in December of 2004, questions about the scientific evidence in the Willingham case began to surface. Maurice Posley and Steve Mills of the Chicago Tribune published an investigative series on flaws in forensic science. Upon learning of Hearst's report, Posley and Mills asked three fire experts, including John Lentini, to examine the original investigation. The experts concurred with Hearst's report. Nearly two years later, the Innocence Project commissioned Lentini and three other top five investigators to conduct an independent review of the arson evidence in the Willingham case the panel concluded that each and every one of the indicators of arson had been scientifically proven to be invalid. Wow. Sadly, before this, much about arson investigation was already known. So we had that case from 1977. We had the Lime Street fire from 1990. 1990. So it's not new information. It's just coming kind of to the forefront. Mm -hmm. In 1992, the National Fire Protection Association, which promotes fire prevention and safety, Published its first scientifically based guidelines to arson investigation. Still, many arson investigators believe that what they did was more of an art than a science,
1: a blend of
0: experience and intuition. In 1997, the International Association of Arson Investigators filed a legal brief arguing that arson sleuths should not be bound by a 1993 Supreme Court decision requiring experts who testified at trials to adhere to scientific method. By 2000, after the courts had rejected such claims, arson investigators increasingly recognized the scientific method— But there remained great variance in the field, with many practitioners still relying on the unverified techniques that had been used for generations. Like, you're literally just saying, like, no, like, I know that's scientific, but. My gut tells me otherwise. Yeah, exactly. My gut. (laughs) I trust my gut. You got to trust your gut. (laughs) Concerned Texas legislators created a forensic science commission, which took up Willingham's case in 2008. The commission was set to hear arson testimony from an expert it had hired, Craig Byler, who reviewed the expert arson testimony used in 1992 to convict Cameron Todd Willingham. But then, Governor Perry announced he was replacing three of the commission's members and chose a Texas prosecutor as the new chairperson. This change delayed Byler's testimony and any other expert findings from his investigation until after the upcoming gubernatorial election. The commission released findings in April showing that the science behind Willingham's conviction and death was not science at all, and could be more accurately described as a collection of wives' tales. But in a hopeful silver lining for people in prison for arson in Texas, the report included a commitment from the state fire marshal's office, which will partner with the Innocence Project of Texas, to identify and reinvestigate old arson cases that may have been built on the same faulty fire science that spelled Willingham's demise. Oh, okay. Okay. So, again, like, good's coming. Yeah. John Lantini was part of a panel commissioned by the Innocence Project to review the evidence that in 2006 determined the conclusion of arson, based on physical clues like burn patterns on the floor and fracture patterns in glass, was not supported by modern-day science. A report from the National Research Council had harshly criticized almost every discipline of forensic science, including fire pattern investigation, for a lack of scientific underpinning in its practices. Mm-hmm. So it, they were just throwing the word science around like mm-hmm. it didn't mean science. Much of the recent upheaval in the forensics world can be traced back to a landmark study released by the National Academy of Sciences in 2009, which seems like this was just yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like how many things haven't happened since...
1: That's super recent. So
0: recent titled Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward, which I think we talked about in some of our um, classes in school, Mm -hmm. just about how like this, because it was 2009 when it was when it came out. So I feel like it was like a big deal.
1: Oh, we were at UCSD, yeah that's what i'm saying
0: like i I feel like i remember because i looked up the book and i remember like seeing the front of it Mm -hmm. the report questioned the scientific basis for virtually every forensic discipline used to convict people and send them to prison with the exception of dna analysis it found no forensic method had been rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently and with a high degree of certainty demonstrate a connection between evidence and a specific individual or source the National Academy of Science report was particularly damning for the so-called pattern-matching disciplines in which an analyst examines a piece of evidence, say a bloody fingerprint found at a crime scene, and tries to match it to a sample belonging to a suspect. At the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting, where forensic areas are divided into 11 different sections, many members of such fields responded with a mix of denial and defiance. So they're still like, mm, don't know. While some practitioners took up the call issued by the NAS report, the fingerprint community, for example, has worked to develop objective comparison methods and determine error rates. Others have continued to insist in the old ways of doing things. Still? Still.
1: Why are they so... What
0: I don't understand is like why it's being allowed. Like Mm -hmm, if you're mm -hmm. a fire department or a police department and you have these fire experts or fire analysts or fire forensic people... Why aren't you making sure that they're following actual science, like proven science? Right. Why are they so reluctant to adopt the because they're old methods? people who are just so set in their like ways that are <laughs> like, no, I know more <laughs> than the scientists. Right. I am a science expert or a fire expert. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. So there has that's been sad. a lot of like work that's being done and that's, you know, kind of like being pushed and in the hopes that these types of cases become fewer and fewer. Um, But it seems like there's still just like a group of people who are determined to continue doing things their way without Mm -hmm. acknowledging that things have changed Mm -hmm. and that there's new information Mm -hmm. that debunks what their beliefs are and what their gut tells them. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a group of those type of people in every Mm -hmm. aspect of criminal justice. Yeah. So... That's the story of Todd Willingham and of what's going on within the forensics fields today. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is like a growing and like changing field. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot that is still coming up. But it is interesting to see just how much has changed. It's So th- this happened in 91, but he wasn't executed until 2004. And yeah. all of this already existed, existed. at that time.
1: It existed before his... um, Yeah. See, so I knew about this case already, but I always thought that they didn't learn about everything until after he was executed. I had no idea that the Hearst report existed prior to him being executed and Mm -hmm. that the Lime Street case existed prior to his house case burning down. That was shocking to me because that adds an entire
0: new layer to the issues around the case. There's a lot. So there's like a couple others that are like, obviously like this case I think would be probably the the biggest because Mm -hmm. the the person was actually executed. Right. Um, But there's like two or three others that came really, really close that had kind of put like fire science at the Mm -hmm. forefront of Mm -hmm. things and and to show like this, not everything is what it seems. And there's, you know, science that needs to be conducted to prove all of these things. So he's definitely not the first. And will most likely not be the last just it's really sad that this happened Mm -hmm. the government has executed an innocent man all of the evidence was there right and they just they went ahead and did it anyways so thank you guys all for listening we're excited to be back this new year don't forget to subscribe rate and review thank you so much for everyone that has um all the
1: reviews make us happy so continue doing that and we will see you next week to talk about some death penalty
0: cases all right all right thank you everyone thank you bye my name is Stephanie, and this is my co-host Sandy. Hey guys, what do
1: I sound like? I don't know how to speak. You sound like you have food in
0: your mouth. Do you have oh. food in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like a chipmunk. A fireman? War- a fireman? Nope. I can't laugh. No. <laughs> 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 ha, 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 fireman.
1: <laughs>
0: First president of Colgate Palmolive. Palmolive. The freaking okay. The soap. Palm olive. Palm olive. Is that what it is? it's cuz I'm saying it in Spanish. Palmolive. Palmolive. Palm olive. Palm and an olive. olive. You're so right. I That's know. literally what I for years been like how the fuck do you pronounce his parole on the wobbery. Wa- everything is hearsay. Literally everything is hearsay. <laughs> this is hearsay. It's all discretionary. It it's at your discretion. <laughs> come on you guys like this is absolutely ridiculous (laughs) the investigators discovered discovered yeah